This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to welcome two-time Australian Masters champion and noted swing instructor Bradley Hughes to the Sub-70 podcast. Uh, Bradley, thanks for taking the time today. I've been looking forward to this conversation. You are welcome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, too. Well, I saw on uh, Twitter your uh, golf game is still holding up okay. Made seven birdies in one round. Uh, how often do you play in these days? And and looks like there's still some uh, game left in the old pro there. I don't think you forget how to play. <laughs> Obviously, uh, that was beer golf, not uh, not tournament golf. There's a that's a different beast. But you know, I can still play all right. I don't play a lot, but you know, generally, if you uh, you don't forget how to how to do it. But it was fun having a, a nice day like that. How do you how do you what's your expectations anymore as a former you know high level world class professional to still enjoy the game? Did you have to just sort of let it go and it, you're not going to be as good as you once were because you're not putting the effort in? Or is, I know sometimes guys just don't play that much anymore when they're teaching for a living and whatnot. How do you sort of approach your your golf at this juncture knowing you're not you know playing tournament golf any longer? Well, it's just a bit of fun, really. Um, you know, I just went out and played with some friends. I'll, I'll play with some of the, the pros that I teach. I think it's good to get out on the course for them and not necessarily uh, – put yourself against them or anything, but it's good to see them play on the course. And it's more fun with me just walking around, you know, instead of just walking around with them watching it, it's good to have a bit of a game while you, while you're playing. So, you know, I don't, I'm not competitive. I have no plans on um, playing events again or anything like that. Teaching's my, my main thing. So I think I'm a little bit um, softer on myself when I'm out playing. If I hit a bad shot, I'm just, shrug it off to rust and not worry about it too much so the expectations aren't aren't as high and the, obviously the practice level is not there so it's just more fun now so i get an enjoyment out of golf rather than it being a job where are you teaching out of uh, these days in what part of the united states are you living in now i live in greenville south carolina i teach at a place called holly tree country club that's about 10 miles from downtown Greenville and it was actually interesting because when I was I moved here in 2005 to this area and I was still on tour then and I actually used to practice out there so it's sort of gone full full circle I used to work on my game out there and now here I am trying to help other people get their game in order at the same venue so it's been good it's a great club for me everyone's really been appreciative and supportive of what I'm doing so it's a it's a great setup and and I wouldn't really wish for anything better. It's a, it's a great part of the country. We get pretty good weather most of the year. It's been stinking hot, though, the last five or six months. But we're getting fall now, so, you know, the winters aren't too bad. I generally get to still teach pretty much every day. We get a little bit of snow, maybe one or two days, but it's gone quick. So it, it's a good year-round spot for me to, to do what I'm doing. What do you most appreciate about the culture of, you know, Greenville and South Carolina and that area? And then is there parts of Australia, you know, that you, you miss that, you know, where you grew up and, and you don't get back there as often? Is there parts of your home country that uh, you wish you could have in the States a little bit as well? Yeah, well, the golf courses in Melbourne where I grew up, uh, you, you don't realize how 
how unbelievably good they were until you you travel around the world a fair bit and, and play other places. You know, we got really spoilt, spoilt there. Um, you know, Greenville's great. We're like an hour from the mountains and three hours from the the beach, which is fine. You know, we've got a little bit of everything if you want it. Not far to get to Charlotte or Atlanta if a flight gets messed up. And so I can always get home pretty much. It's just if I'm a traveling. It's, uh, you know, I grew up by the beach, probably less than half a mile away. So the beach doesn't bother me. I'm not a beach person. Um, so, but it's a great little, it's a great town. It's really growing. It's getting pretty busy. And, you know, the golf side of things, there's actually not that many golf courses in Greenville. There's, you know, probably only about half a dozen established clubs right in the area. But we've got some, you know, not far away. The Cliffs is a community that has about six or seven courses, but I don't classify them as Greenville. They're out a little bit. And, but for such um, a small golf area, we've had a lot of great players come out of out of this area. Uh, Bill Haas and his dad Jay and Lucas Glover and Charles Warren. Um, I'm probably forgetting someone. A few other people there. Kyle Thompson. We've we've had a lot of good golfers come out of out of this region. So it's it's a popular spot. People love their their college sport. Unfortunately. College football right now is killing some of my lessons. Everyone's more interested in that than getting golf lessons. But it, it's a great spot to be. I wouldn't wouldn't really change where I am. Really happy. I also see that you're now uh, hosting a podcast. So uh, when you're doing my job, what have you sort of found most interesting about about hosting a podcast and you know having the guests on and and kind of uh, hosting the show versus being on the other end? I'm sure throughout your career you're used to being interviewed on the other side of this. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I'll, I'll use one of my friend's phrases. He uh, he said he loves my podcast because I've tried to um, I've tried to get good guests on that were players. You know, not necessarily the equipment side or the you know just someone that were were mentally there as a golf pro. You know, on the circuit. I've had Ian Baker Finch. We know what he went through, and Frank Nobolo is now you know was a great player and is a a commentator now, Doug Sanders, who's a legend, Curtis Strange, um, you know, Brendan Todd, who I've worked with. So I've had a bunch of players, and one of my friends said he finds it really interesting because he thinks I get a little bit more out of them because I know them, so they're sort of friends as well as golfers. So he, he loves the the little things that I can get out of them to talk about that maybe they may not talk about with someone that they don't necessarily know as well. So that's sort of been the plan with it to, to help people understand more about the pro side of things, what we go through, what we went through, and, you know, just maybe a few little extra things that I can delve into just from the personal aspect of them and, and knowing them in the past as well. So it's been fun. I'm a, bit, a little bit slack on it. I moved house a few months back and I've been held up trying to, get a few organized so i got to get on the ball again and do that but it's been fun it's interesting to do some of the research on the players obviously i knew them and i know what they've done i was a, a pretty good golf historian I, I like to follow all the history of golf so most of my questions just came to me i have a few notes down there and, and just talk but for the most part just try and let them go and add a couple of things here and there to maybe lead them down a path but it's been interesting been fun uh, I, I, i've got to do more I thought the Michael Clayton two-part series you did was fantastic. And I, I can t- totally see where 
your perspective of playing the tour and understanding kind of what he's been through in the golf architecture standpoint, I thought that was great. Is he? I got to get him on our podcast. He's got to be. I've listened to him a couple of times. He is such a good guest, and the topics are so interesting of his thoughts and what he thinks of the modern game. And we'll dive into that a little bit later as well. But man, that was a good one. I think he is. Uh, he's a very interesting person to listen to to talk about this game. I don't know what your thoughts. Yeah, he is. Well, you know, he jumped the fence. He was a player and now he's a course designer. So he understands the whole battle of golfer versus course. Um, I went a little bit different direction with him. We know the first part, I actually talked about Clates the golfer because most people only hear him talking about the course design and the equipment and everything. So I wanted to delve into him as a player too because he was a very good player. I've, I've known Clates since I was probably 12, 13 years old. So we spent a fair bit of time together, and then I I wanted to hear his side of being a golfer too, because I think that's a really important aspect of where he is at now and why he has the beliefs that he that he has. Some people, um, you know, the, a lot of the players just you know bitch and moan about a course, or they like this hole and they don't like that. But he uh, he sees it all on his merits now, as not just as a player, but from the, the perspective of everyone. You know, he's he's very good at understanding how a whole or a course should play for the whole society and not just the, the pros that, that we see on TV. Yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's, he's a, you can tell he's a very articulate, smart person that has seen, you know, like, kind of like I said, everything in the game. It's, uh, it was really, really good. So well done with that one. Um, I want to talk about your teaching and how did you, how did that transition happen from being a touring professional to saying I want to teach full-time and, and, and kind of go down that line as another profession. How did that transition happen? Well, I think, you know, in about 2008, I bummed around on the, well, it's now the Corn Ferry Tour for a couple of years. I, I didn't really enjoy it. I was It was it was a bit of a struggle because, you know, the prize money is a big drop-off and I had family and mortgages and everything and I was out there basically away from them all the time trying to, to make a living and I was playing okay I just there's just not enough um, upside in it but I think it's more of a tour for young kids to come out and try and get their card or get their games in in place and everything's a bit tougher for an older an older guy trying to pay bills and, and things like that is so I, I realized after a couple of years that I I was playing it more as a means to an end rather than that I liked it so I just thought you know I may as well just try and stay at home. Let's let's think of something else. And and originally, I you know I thought I know a lot about golf. Like I touched on earlier, I know all the history. I knew all the players. I mean, I used to be able to tell you every tournament, the like all the majors, who won, who came second, what they wore, and what the dates were, and what their score. I used to know all that stuff. Memory's fading now, but I was a golf historian, so I liked. You know, I didn't think I could. Oh, I'm sure I could have done anything I wanted to, but I had the background in golf that I could do all that. Um, I About that time, I was sort of on a little bit of a mission too about my golf swing, What I why I didn't play as well as I did when I was younger, why my swing looked different. And I just sort of went back through some of the coaching I received. And, and mine was interesting because I didn't really have lessons until I was in my mid-20s. I'd already won the... Australian Masters and a couple other tournaments and played on the President's Cup and 
I hadn't really had golf lessons. So it was, it was after that that I started getting taught and, and the, the instruction was, um, you know, it was a little bit different. There was reasons, you know, I had a very wide backswing and had a big load down, like not Sergio like, but very similar, you know, the, the angle and the, and none of the people that I ever saw about the, my golf swing liked that. They all wanted me to change it. So, uh, you can imagine if someone, you know, that's why I pat Sergio on the back that he's never changed that part of his swing because I know everyone wanted to, just like everyone wanted to change Jim Furyk. So it sort of made me understand that there's more to the fundamentals or to the golf swing than what people look at. And most people look at the backswing and, you know, all the just minor stuff that the, the things they can see basically. So I, I thought, well, I'm, I'm more interested in the blur, you know, the bit that you can't see near through impact, near impact. I think that's what makes the, the swing work. And the other stuff is just different ways to do it or how to get there and, and make it happen. So when I first started teaching, I was in an Edwin Watts store in Greenville, now the, near the Greenville mall and was making like $40 for a lesson. And wasn't, it was just sort of getting my feet wet in it. And, I was teaching a lot of stuff that I originally got told by these instructors. And after a few months, I realized, you know, why, why am I teaching that? I didn't believe it worked for me. So let's delve into it a bit more. And I stopped teaching and I took some time off and sat in front of my computer and I thought about my swing and I thought about other people's swings that were good players. And I really looked at the swings that weren't technically sound, but were great players. Someone like, Ray Floyd and Jim Furyk and Lee Trevino, you know, people didn't really think their swings were that technically good, but obviously they played really well. So I went back and I just saw a lot of common denominators in what they all did and realized that it sort of matched up with what I did. And then I, I built a plan about how to teach people. And and then obviously teaching's very subjective. You got to, most people teach two ways. They're going to teach what a book tells them and they try and follow a, a plan that, you know, David Ledbetter set out or Jimmy Ballard set out or someone set out this plan, they're going to try and um, distribute that in their awareness or sense or maybe just follow the dot-to-dot -dot thing of it. And the other way is to teach what they felt themselves. So that's pretty tough because a lot of the times we know, you know, I know when people talk about getting left, you know, jump over to your left side, get on your left side to, and that's that's more of a, um, as you know, if you follow my stuff, I talk about actually going down the right side to get left. So there's a lot of feels involved that aren't necessarily truths. You know, they, they happen for another cause and effect. So I was good at deciphering all that um, based off my golf also, you know, my swings and what I felt and just came up with a plan and started trying it. I tested out with one person to start with to make sure it would work my drill series and he went from like a 130 shooter to a 74 shooter within nine or ten months so i sort of knew i was on the right track there and started selling the thing online and going on a few golf forums and talking and golf forums are a battle they're hard work because everyone's everyone's an expert everyone thinks they're correct so you gotta i'd learned a lot of patience being on the golf forums how to respond to people and try and put things into the correct wording that they could understand it and see it. And, and obviously, you know, from watching my stuff on Instagram and Twitter and all that, I try and back that up with 
videos or pictures of, of some of the players to sort of try and get the the point across. And I think had good success with it. And a lot of people are becoming attracted to my ideals and see it now. They can understand it and see it because I try and explain it simply and, and use images of people doing it. And and we're taking off now. It's going really good. Getting pretty busy and and that that's the fun bit knowing that you know that people are getting better and people are seeing it and, and understanding that it better. That's that's that was my whole goal and making people better and getting them to feel what I felt when I played. You know why I could hit the shots I could hit and they're getting a little bit of a greater chance of doing that by following the, the system that I've set out and the smiles on their face and the great scores uh, make me appreciate that a lot. Hey everyone, it's Jason Hyland from the Sub-70 Podcast. Uh, fall is definitely here, and it's like the best time of the year to play golf, especially in the Midwest. The leaves are changing, the temperatures are great, and also down south, I know the, the heat's broken a little bit, so there is still plenty of time left in the golf season this year. If you have any uh, equipment needs that you may need, uh, feel free to let us know over here at Sub-70 Golf. We're always glad to help you. Our new uh, website has launched at golfsub70.com. So if you have any fitting questions or which equipment might fit you the best, we are always glad to help. Uh, appreciate all of the support and uh, hope you're truly enjoying the uh, podcast we're having with Bradley. And thanks again. If there's anything else we can do to help you, just reach out and let us know. As a follow-up, it's, it's interesting to me that you didn't have lessons until your mid-20s, let's say, when you are already an established world-class player, it's President's Cups teams, it's it's big wins on big stages. What, what were you trying to find, or how did that come about where you're, you're obviously successful at what you're doing? You know, my guess, why would you want to change what you're doing when it's essentially working? And kind of how did that come about? Yeah, well, there's two there's two logics to that. One... It sort of happened when the computer age came out where people started, you know, they're making golf programs, softwares for computers and and what have you. So you could dissect the swing a little bit more. And I thought that was interesting just to that side of things that I could um, maybe see stuff rather than feel stuff. But the main thing was I wanted, I was moving to America full time. So I wanted to sort of know what my swing did or, what what made it tick so the the initial plan was to not necessarily change my swing the plan was to find out about my swing and in the process like i said with my big wide back swing and the big load and my right foot slid like greg norman and i had this big high finish and sort of looked aggressive through my shots um that that swing got changed because the people that i spoke with didn't understand what I was doing. So, you know, like I said, they were more, you know, we've got to understand that that era, and I'm talking, you know, early, mid-90s, was the Feldo era, basically, the Ledbetter teaching era, and everyone was trying to teach what Nick Feldo did via Ledbetter's books and videos. So, you know, his his deal at that point was set the wrist, rotate the body up, big, you know, turn, big muscles, all that. So I was doing it the total opposite. And of course, being taught out of a book, you, you you lost. I lost some of my feeling, or I lost a lot of the dynamics that actually made my swing work. So I could still play golf pretty good, but it became it became harder. I was I was playing more 
I've got to be here, I've got to be there, I've got to do this and that. Whereas when I used to swing, I used to set it, go wide and just lay into it. So my 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 golf brain became thinking of, you know, spots, you know, rather than feels or force or, or uh, you know, visuals or whatever I wanted to try and do with my swing. So they tied in, you know, once I started seeing my swing on the computer and I'd look at it and, my coach would say, well, that looks good there. Look, you're on plane and everything. But, you know, then I'd look at it and I'd go, well, yeah, but look at it there. Like, it's off plane over there. And, no, no, don't worry about that. So, you know, it was all very eye-opening because it, it sort of helped shape my teaching later on in that, you know, he was, they were all trying to get me to be on plane coming down and my club would fly off plane on the way through. And that when I looked at all my old swings and all these great pros, Hogan and Player, and they were off plane coming down, they were on plane going through. So that was sort of some of the things that I worked out when I was looking at my, in my um, finding my coaching ideas era there or spell where I, I saw some things that, you know, that didn't match up to a lot of the instruction that was going around at the time. And it, it sort of made me realize that there are other ways as, there's certainly fundamentals to golf, but there's also some that aren't true or, or are not as necess- um, you know, not as necessary as, as other things. So I built my instruction based on all those variables and things that I saw on um, entry first. And we know I talk a lot about the 430 path. That became my first drill. I got to, had to learn to teach people what the release was actually like, what was going on. And then I had to build the footwork and legwork in to support that release and also support what was going to happen on the way through. Because I think on the through swing is very important. It's a forgotten part of golf swing because everyone's become so impact orientated, especially with the track mans and all the other. You know, it's only given out impact numbers. It's not given out what's happening past the ball and things like that. So I, I think... I built my swing around those three things and then I actually put the backswing and downswing later on, whereas that's probably the backswing is certainly what most people teach first for the most part. So I sort of shelved that down the back because I I believe once you knew how to get to 430 or you know approach to impact, release that club and then keep going with it, that there are a lot more options on the backswing than having to be such and such here and there. And that's that's sort of what I did. I went wide, I loaded it down, I dropped it into 430 and then I had to use my feet good because I had so much angle and I had to keep going past the ball. So that's what I started seeing in all these other golfers that they their backswings, you know, like I said, the Furick and the Floyd and the Trevino and even Nicholas, you know, had that big flying right elbow and he started. Um, there was all different ways to do it, but, but basically what they were doing was finding their best way to get get back to the hot spot, which was 4.30 and, and beyond. So that was how my teaching evolved from watching that. And even though, you know, it probably hurt my golf a little bit going through that phase of changing the swing. Like I said, I didn't want to change it. I just wanted to know what I was actually doing. But in the process, it all got changed along the way. But that eventually helped my, my coaching. So here we are now. You know, obviously, I'm not playing but um the the teaching side of things going through that that sort of lean not lean spell like i said i could still play but 
a, a very uh, a, you know varied results basically I was hot and cold and, and the biggest thing I noticed was I had the ability when I was younger with that old swing to go really low I could shoot 10 unders and nine unders you know once every week or well, not week a couple of weeks I was having really low scores and you know you'd have a blowout to a 75 here and there if you went on and but you don't win tournaments shooting 71s. You win tournaments shooting those 63s and and things like that. So, you know, my low score, instead of being 63, went to 68s. And then my high score went from 75 to maybe 73. But like I said, you, you don't win unless it's a US Open or a tough tournament. You don't win just shooting pars and one-unders. You've got you to have that ability to go low. And I think I lost that a little bit because my swing became... Um, a paint by number rather than a you know let it loose and go type uh, feel and structure and everything like that yeah it, I have to imagine it turns into less just see the shot hit it and now you're thinking about even at your level three or four different positions and you probably just weren't as free or dynamic or I'm sure in your with your with your older swing you were younger you just saw the shot and hit the golf shot I'm assuming when you sort of got into that zone of shooting a 63 it probably seemed easy see the shot hit the shot not a yeah, whole technical in, yeah well you've got to remember see golf is still a target game people forget that because the ball's just sitting on the ground in front of them, but there's still a target there and you've got to react to it so you just you can't be thinking a lot we we know a basketball and Steph Curry he ain't he's not sh- thinking of much when he's dribbling in the corner and jumping up and shooting it and hitting the threes exactly. he's just reacting to to a target and People get too transfixed on the the positions of a golf swing, and like I realised too from that search and my swing and looking at others, is that a lot of the positions you actually see in a golf swing are based on what's come before and what's coming after. It's not actually that position that you you're trying to get. So people get bogged down; they they forget that there's a a cause and effect at sort of every little part that you see in the swing. So they're they're trying to stick the club here and they're trying to stick the club there because that's where they saw Dustin Johnson or Ben Hogan or Greg Norman. And, and of course, I guarantee those guys were never trying to put it in that position. It was just happening as a result of something else. So I like to call that like a vapour trail that it's like the the little jet stream out the back of a plane. It's it's flying and that jet stream is coming out because of something else. It's not you know, the fuel and the wings and what have you. It's not. So like my right foot slide, that was not because I was trying to slide it. That was because I was actually trying to push harder down so I could rotate my body out of the way and my foot slid as a as a result. You know, there's a lot of, like I said, vapor trails in golf that happen from cause and effect. And that's I think that's one of the things that hurt. You know, computers are great for people. I don't use them very much because I think people get too bogged down in the look. They, they worry about what it looks like when ultimately the goal of golf is what the ball does. So if you can make the ball do what it's got to do, then you've got to have a pretty functional swing, which is Lee Trevino, Jim Furyk, Ray Floyd. They obviously were doing something right to have the careers they had. Yeah, and it seems like of late there's this, you know, with like Brando Chambly or, I mean, even some of the ideas I think, you know, Genghis kind of has versus, oh, you know, Jim McLean of, you know, restrictive hip turn and, you know, big wide shoulder turn. And uh, I kind of say it's a little less athletic, but more of like a natural swing coming back. Do, do you kind of feel that as well, that 
so there's some voices out there that are kind of pushing more, for lack of a better word, some old school stuff that's that people kind of lost. I know, like Brandel has said in some interviews and stuff, you know, he would his game was never as good as when he had his natural kind of golf swing he had in the early '80s, and you know, he hit it farther with a bigger hip turn and the heel coming up. Do you do you sort of see a resurgence coming back with some of these ideas of not every swing has to look like, uh, you know, A B C D perfect as long as the impact zone is there and it's dynamic dynamic and it's athletic that's where i feel some teachers are trying to get back to a little bit do you feel that same surge kind of coming i think there is to a degree yeah and you know a swing is a swing it's you know obviously people try and tell me well you can't swing that way because the equipment's different well no not really The, the equipment's a bit longer and it's a bit lighter so I, I, in fact, believe that the stuff that I teach is even more important nowadays than, than what it was. And I think, I think with the older woods and the steel shafts and the clubs were heavier, you know, there, there was in, inclined to be that left heel up and, and all these different things because you were swinging more weight, even though, you know, if you weighed them together, it's not a massive difference, but put them in motion and you can really feel the difference. So, Today's clubs being longer, lighter, and based on speed, you know, most people, the, the biggest problem most people have is over-accelerating the club. They just swing it so hard because it's so light, and next minute the head's going past them and their body's stopping and their hands are taken over, and the equipment's basically killing them. So what I teach, and like you said, a few of the other guys that maybe trying to head towards also is not necessarily that it's old school. It's it's a better way. You know, I know, you know, you look at all the injuries of people today. They've got back surgeries, knee surgeries, wrists. Justin Thomas and Jason Dave, their wrists taped up every week. It, that's just too much over-acceleration of the club and swinging that light stick by them and their, their body eventually can't deal with it. It's got to stop at some point to, to let the club catch up and everything. So... What I try and teach is definitely better on the body. In fact, I've had numerous people stop having their tennis elbow or golf elbow, whatever you want to call it, because I've, I've taught them how to not straighten and thrust their right arm at the ball. I've taught them to bend it a bit more and have a bit more arm rotation from that 430. I've had people not have their back problems anymore because I've stopped them um, stalling near impact and just lifting their left shoulder up and letting the club and hands fly by. I've taught them how to rotate past the ball. So it's not only better for your game, it's better for your body. And I think, you know, and I, I don't mind the Jim McLean thing, the X factor thing. I, I think obviously you want to turn your shoulders more than you turn your hips. But a lot of good players did keep their right hip. You know, they they didn't overturn it. They certainly didn't keep it still. They just worked into it a bit more. So I'm not a big um, spit in your face over his idea about that. I think there's actually a lot of players exhibited that, and it's not the worst the worst thing in the world. But, you know, we, we do see the left heels coming back into play, and that's important because, you know, how can you – you have to transfer weight, and if you – still stuck on your left foot at the top of your swing, you're not really being able to transfer your weight. You're just going to club the club from the top with your hands and arms and basically jump up in the air because you can't bounce forward and bump forward and, and move that right side through the ball because you're already too far left. So I, I believe, I think some people may maybe come to their senses that a lot of the instruction 
was not correct. Um, I know I've talked about that using that right leg in transition for 11 years now since I stopped playing and started teaching and and we saw there was a you know a stack and tilt phase for a while there were people trying to stay left and and I even saw Sean Foley come out once you know a few years ago now and because he talked about you know getting on that left leg and everything and I saw him actually do a total reverse trend of that once he got a body track or one of those cattle swing catalyst things and and understood that just like I always said that you actually you bump left by pushing down the right so some technologies help people understand things. I think I was at an advantage that I knew all that because I was a player. Most most instructors weren't players. That's what they taught, but some sort of a different field. And I'd be actually be very interested to see what happens. You know, there's still a lot of money in golf where people can have long careers and play through their 40s and then onto the Champions Tour and that. But I, I'm wondering if in the future there will be something like what I've done, you know, a lot more of it, very much like tennis. You see a lot of the coaches now are former players. Uh, Ed Berg and obviously Landall did it and Michael Chang and Agassi coaches. And I think that's a real advantage. You know, I believe it is for my coaching that I'm working with a few of the pros now and that I was out there doing what they're doing. So I understand not only what they're going through, but how they're trying to think while they're playing shots and execute them and and I'm for from a obviously an instructor's mentality but also from a, a player's mentality. So I think that's gonna be a something that we may see more of in in the future if uh a players are dedicated enough like I was to actually come up with their own ideas and plans and, and work it out and not just uh, you know fall off something else that someone else told, you know, that they read in the book or or heard about. I think I think players know, even though people say, well, you can play, you don't know what you're talking about, you don't have to know, but to a degree that's true. Well, you, but you can know if you search and delve into it. And I think players are, I'd much rather go listen to Gary Player in a bunker for 15 minutes than someone else that never played at that, that level. So... I'm interested to see where all this leads in the in the few years. Obviously, I got a vested interest in that because I was a player and sort of getting a little bit of recognition for that now. But I think that's that's going to be a trend. There's going to be a lot more former players um, go the route that I did, really delve into the teaching side of things and and pass it on to the other players. I think it's an interesting perspective because I agree with you that. You know, even just even from a mental approach to it, right? You've been in all those situations, and you know, you've won big tournaments, you've you've lost tournaments, you've played under the highest pressure with Presidents Cups and that side. So you can understand where they're coming from. Then, if you have the technical background, to me, it seems like it would be a perfect fit for a former professional to teach. And I think probably maybe at some level, you know, Butch Harmon won on the PGA Tour, right? He, he did it. He played out there. I, I, I have to assume that that helped his, like a better word credibility with the guys at that level because you know he's seen it all as well i mean he wasn't out on tour for 20 years but he won on the pga tour absolutely and his father won the masters and he got to hang around all these great players so he saw all them up front he, he had the personal experience of all these players you know just soaking it in as a kid you know kids remember everything and see stuff so absolutely that you know he helped he helped a lot of players because i think of that player mentality What's your view of working out? I saw like an interesting thing like with Bryson saying he's going to try to even get bigger, and I'm sure you've 
seen Bryson. He's a pretty big kid as it is, you know, 6'2 and pretty solid. What's your view of the kind of working out you want your students to do? And do you think, as you know, the old debate that goes on all the time, you know, when Tiger got really muscular, it wasn't as good for golf as it was when he was wide-shouldered and lanky kind of strong, um, seemed to have more natural speed than than he did when he got you know, physically bigger arms and heavier across the chest. Where's your sort of approach to to how like a really good golf body should be for your players to kind of get the most out of it? Well, there's two types of ideas about speed. You know, I won't. One is strength, obviously. Kepka's big guy. You know, they all work out. They love doing that stuff. Um, and then there's also range of motion. Like if your body can get into these, or flexibility, really, if you want to call it. If you can get into these certain range of motions that can make the club whip and deliver and your body keep going and all that, then there's speed that way. That's what Tiger had when he was when he was younger. He had a great range of motion in his arms and his legs and he could move the club really fast. But when he bulked up, um, you know, obviously it changes your swing a bit. You lose some of that range of motion because your muscles are bigger. And so... You know, but I don't mind, you know, the people that I work with, and you've got to remember, I don't just work with pros. I've worked with all types of golfers for years now. So I'm, I don't mind people working out. It's up to them. But the drills that I have are very specific. They're, they're basically a workout themselves. You should watch some people do my drill one and then my drill three, and after about 10 of each, they're like puffed because it, it is a workout in itself, but it's a workout with a golf club. So I'm not trying to get them to just pump weights. You know, there's, there's golf strong and then there's strong. And I always tell a few people when they they um, do the drill one and they're hitting the bag and they, I said, does your arm hurt yet? And they said, yep. <laughs> they've only done like six reps of it. And I say, well, that's fine. That's that's you training your your muscles. And I give them the example. I, I did some, I did a couple of days with Pete Sampras, one in Australia and one in California where he lives. And when we first did it, you know, he's a big, strong guy, world-class tennis player. And he did, you know, about six or eight of the first drill. And same thing. I said, is your arm hurt yet? And he said, yep. I said, well, there you go. That's There's golf muscles and then there's muscles. So I'm more involved in trying to get people work the proper golf muscles rather than just muscles themselves. So um, there's, you know, there's two different ways to think about it. I think being strong is obviously an advantage, but being golf strong is better. I was doing the research on this and saw the work that you did with Brendan Todd, and I listened to the podcast with him on there with you. Uh, but for the, the listeners who may not know the backstory, how did you start working with him? And, and Brendan Todd, if, if people don't know, he's a PGA Tour player. So most people who listen to the podcast know who he is. And what did you? What was he not doing so well? And then what did you guys sort of accomplish in working together to kind of get his career back in line and, you know, playing some better golf? Well, Brendan wrote me uh, probably about July last year, I think it was, and I knew his name. I didn't know him. He he came on the scene after I'd left, and I knew he, he won the Byron Nelson in 2014, had some great finishes, almost made the Ryder Cup team in 15, and then basically disappeared. He couldn't hit the... He couldn't hit the golf course, not with every shot, but you know he'd line up over a shot, especially in the longer irons and fairway woods and driver and that, and hit one. You know he said forty yards right for no reason. Then of course he'd double cross sometimes and pull it left, and as a re- 
fear of that. So he he really didn't know when that shot was going to creep in, and and he was working with a few different people and trying to work his way through it, and had sort of no no luck. And he he read uh, one of his friends told him about my ebook that I have, so he was going on holiday and he bought it. It's like nine dollars or something like that, and he read it and he he wrote me and he said I loved your book I love how you talk about force and pressures and not position so much it's all about a force from this angle and a force going that way and a lot of them are opposite and things like that so he said I'd love to maybe come and see you for a few hours one day and just touch base see what you think and where we can go so you know we we talked about I, I you know I really only teach five or six things people forget that i you know, I have a lot of different ways to teach them, but the main five things that I came up with through my research and looking at my swing and the old swings, and and we just sort of ran through them. They'd, you know, some of them will have a differing effect on some people than others, and some will need more of one than another, and things like that. So, the main thing that happened with Brendan is very tall, and he liked to swing around himself. He didn't like to be too upright with his swing. He liked bending over a bit and being a little bit flatter swing, even though he's six foot three. And he would hit this right shot and the people were trying to say, well, if you feel the club face more closed on the way down and try and rotate out of the way of it, and you can't hit it right. But in fact, that made him hit it further right because he was so scared of that club face being shut that he couldn't release the club. So next minute with his height and he's crouched over, sort of set up, he would just not move his body, he'd actually steepen his shoulders up and his hands would get to the ball well before the club and he'd just leave the face way open and hit it hit it right. So the first thing we started with was actually, I said, right, we're going to start at that 4.30 thing that you read in the book and I want you to feel that club as open as you can. Not closed, I want you to feel it as open as you can. And he sort of looked at me with a strange expression, but he goes, well, you know, I'm just going to hit it right. So off he went, and of course he couldn't. He couldn't hit it right because it actually gave him permission to release the club. So he was now allowed to square that club up with his arms and everything. And as he did that, his body, lo and behold, started working on the way through because it didn't have to stop to try and keep the face open and had somewhere to go. So we just sort of went along those. Obviously, there's a yin and yang to everything. It didn't all happen straight overnight, but. You know, you've got to work on one thing and then, of course, everything that you alter has a direct result on something else. So I know what the next part is that we've got to work on and and we sort of bled them all in together. And then, um, you know, this year we started working on his transition downswing a little bit. So it, it, you can't do it all at once. You can't teach the swing all at once. But just those first couple of basics really helped him start to play better and he shot some good numbers in the at the end of last year, started getting in some tournaments through his past status and, you know, he'd missed like 40 of 44 cuts the previous three years or something. Then last year he made eight of 11 cuts, had a few top 20s and top 25s and then got his card back for this year and actually had a great uh, Houston Open there. He finished 28th, I think. He shot six under on Sunday there. So things are looking up, you know, like I said, his... His results or his or the way we went about it for him is very different to like I did with Russell Knox and it's a little bit similar to what I'm working with with Greg Chalmers and it's you know totally opposite to what I'm working with with Cameron Percy. There's all 
They're, but they're all the same things, but they're different uh, different reasons why I would get them to do one of the work on one of the drills. You know, people see the board in a lot of my videos, and no one really understands that. They can all go buy one if they like, but until you understand what you're actually doing with it, it's not going to be as important or as effective as it could be. So I'm not too worried about showing some of those things because there is a, a background and an understanding and a reason why it works. But if people do it and they get better with it, that's good. But ultimately, I'd love them to come and see me <laughs> to learn the true the true ideas of it and the reasons why. But you know, it, it's fun working with the pros, especially because the pros, you know, to a certain degree, just like I had, they they probably did what I'm showing them at some point in their swing, uh, some point in their golfing life, I mean. So, and they've got led away from it, from thoughts or different instruction or what have you. So I, a lot of the time with pros, I'm just leading them back to where they once were. And then, of course, with the amateur guy or the beginner or the not-so-good golfer, he's learning a whole new thing that he has no idea about. He's never even done it. You know, he'll hit a good shot on the range and he'll go, look, look at that. Why can't I do that in all the time? And I'll say, well, you know, that one was actually pot luck. That's where you shouldn't do that at all based on what you're doing. So it's harder with the, the amateur or the, the standard or the poor golfer because they have to learn a whole new thing that they've probably never felt before, whereas the pros, I'm pointing them back to something that I'm sure they have done in the past at some point. Did Brendan's ball flight change? Did it, did it with the changes that you made, did it, did it want to draw easier then from that position of letting him release it? Did that did the flight get stronger with those changes yeah, I believe as well? So. Yeah, he's got probably flight got a little lower. Uh, he he can control the ball much better trajectory wise and shape wise with basically the same swing, just a different feeling post impact. You know, not what he's doing on the way down. That's technically the same. We have a. I showed him a way of how to hit draws and fades and high and low, basically what you feel and pass the ball rather than you set up or or on the way down. Um, I'm sort of doing that with Cameron Percy too, and he's he started working not long ago, and he's come out. He got his card back through the Corn Ferry finals, and then he's come uh, his last two tournaments. Well, a couple of weeks ago, he came 11th in uh, California, and I think he came seventh in. Um, what was that other one Mississippi or somewhere down there? So Anderson. he's got off to a hot, yeah, Anderson. He's got off to a soft, uh, hot start as well. And you know, really, I didn't change his swing. I just, I just taught him how to use the board for the ground a bit better, and then be able to shape his shots easier with what he's doing after the ball rather than what he's doing on the way down. And that's, a, that's again, that's the interesting thing that I touched on earlier is that. Everyone teaches impact and who cares what happens after that. But I'm, I'm teaching all these guys what happens after impact and it actually has a bearing on what's happening on the way into the ball and how they release and, and strike it anyway. So it's, it's, it's a little bit backwards, but it's, it's truth and the results show that after impact is very important. So the swing ain't over when the, when the ball's hit. 